We're in the book of Revelation, chapter 16. We're going to look at the last two bowls of wrath or judgment that the Lord pours out. And in these bowls of wrath, we hear the term Armageddon. What comes to your mind when you hear the word Armageddon? For many of us, Armageddon is the last battle of good against evil. The last battle, really, of the Gentiles. The last conflict, worldwide conflict, that will usher in God's kingdom. It will be Antichrist against the true returning Christ. We know the winner of this battle. It's all summed up in great day of God. Well, that tells you who wins. But Armageddon is actually only a location. It comes from the term uh, Harmageddon. Uh, Barak fought the Canaanites there. Gideon fought the Midianites there. Armageddon. It's a huge valley. And it's been said it is perfect for a battle. Armageddon sits right beneath Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel, where Elijah destroyed the 400 prophets of Baal. But there are numerous books and movies and what have you that have used Armageddon as their title. So when we hear that word, images of the last days flood our minds. And we will consider Armageddon here this morning in the end of chapter 16 and 17 and 19, for as that goes. But first, let's look at the bowls of judgment, the last two bowls of judgment of God that will be poured out upon man. So let's read Revelation chapter 16, verses 12 through 21. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its waters dried up, so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits, like frogs, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons, performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world, to gather men to battle on that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gathered them together into the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there was noises and thunderings and lightning, and there was great earthquakes, such as such a mighty and great earthquake as not has occurred since men were on earth. 
Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and the great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and great hail from heaven fell on men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. The river Euphrates, biblically speaking, along with the Jordan River, are probably the most well-known rivers in Scripture. The Roman Empire uh, considered the Euphrates River a natural barrier against invasions from the east. The Euphrates, it's about 1,800 miles long, and it has a width of about 300 yards up to 1,200 yards, of course, depending where you're at. And the sixth angel pours out a bowl of dryness. How do you pour out dryness? But he does. He pours out a bowl of dryness and it dries up the Euphrates River. And there's a reason for this drying up of the Euphrates. It's a lure. It's a draw. It's a pulling of the kingdoms and the powers from the east, China, Japan, India, etc. And he pulls these nations into battle. The drying up encourages these powers to come and fight against Israel. These nations are rebelling against the European-based Antichrist system. But ultimately, it's not a rebellion against the Antichrist system. They have come ultimately to battle against God. And nothing unites foes like a common enemy. This Armageddon battle is basically Satan and his allies against God. I do not believe this is the battle of the war spoken of in Ezekiel 38 and 39. I think that battle could occur at any time. That war could break out any time. But this is a final battle before the millennium. The sixth angel, directed by God, dries up a river, and the drying up of this river, men look upon it as a miraculous sign for them to go to war. It's an easy thing to persuade men to do wrong when it's already in the heart. When sitting in a room full of bank robbers, guess what they want to do? They want to rob banks. And when unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, John tells us that these are simply demonic beings. These demons, they go forth, they perform great signs, to gather the world's powers to battle. 
Again, if you're spoiling for a fight, you don't need a lot of encouragement. These enemies, these demons, enemies of God, are easily lured into battle at Armageddon from all over the world and primarily from the East. There's an interesting story in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 22. Ahab, King Ahab of Israel, wants to fight against Syria. But King Ahab wants the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, to help him in this battle. And it's not uncommon for us to, or nations, to seek out allies when they go to war. But Jehoshaphat, who happened to be a pretty good king, he wants to inquire of a prophet from God, Micaiah. Ahab, he is against this idea. Micaiah won't prophesy the way Ahab wants him to. There are some false prophets who know what the king wants, so they prophesy in that manner. Micaiah, he sarcastically says the same thing that these false prophets say, and he basically tells Ahab, go on, go out there and fight. You're a winner, man. <laughs> and King Ahab understands that Micaiah is mocking him. And he's mocking the false prophets, and he gets angry at Micaiah. Or however you pronounce it. <laughs> he demands that Micaiah speak truthfully. And Micaiah does. And he prophesies disaster upon Ahab. He says, you're going to die if you go to war. But here's the twist. Ahab wants to hear, go to war. That's what he wants to hear, and he will not listen to the truthful prophet. Let me read you a couple verses in 1 Kings 22. Uh, I'll read actually three verses, 20 through 22. This is the Lord, and he's speaking. He said, Who will persuade Ahab to go up that he may fall at Ramoth-Gilead? So one spoke in this manner, and another spoke in that manner. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said to him, In what way? So he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. And the Lord said, you shall persuade him and also prevail. Go out and do so. Ahab listens to the lies of the false prophet because that is what he wants to hear. By the way, Ahab dies in that battle. And he dies when one of the bowmen shoots a, just randomly shoots an arrow and it strikes Ahab between the joints of his armor, wounding him mortally, but it takes him a few hours to die, and he dies there. The whole world sees the drying up of the Euphrates rivers, or river, 
as a sign that they should go to war. It's a lure. It's a device by God to bring them to battle, to bring them to their demise. Word of caution. If you're going to inquire of God like Jehoshaphat and Ahab did, perhaps you should listen. Oftentimes, Christians will justify bad, unbiblical decisions based on how they feel. My greatest failures in life have been when I knowingly disobey God. You're set up for failure. As a pastor, I think as a church leader, I hear things like, but I love him. And I know he isn't a Christian. But he will change. To that I say, be careful, my friend. I have counseled wives of unbelieving husbands who are trying to raise their kids now with biblical principles and biblical character and it becomes extremely difficult to do when you have an unbelieving husband or mate. God has told us he is not mocked nor is his word mocked. His precepts, his principles are always true. Like it or don't like it. There's a couple things we should note about this sixth bowl. Jesus says, I am coming quickly. And he says, I am coming as a thief in the night to unbelievers. That's a common expression in scripture, by the way. But it should never be as a thief in the night or a surprise to any believer. For we are to be watching. A believer who observes the events and the times of his days. First Thessalonians chapter 5, let me paraphrase a couple verses there. Verse 2, Paul declares, You know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. Now he's speaking to unbelievers. Then he says, But you, speaking to believers, you are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. Therefore, do not sleep. Watch and be sober. What a difference. The unbeliever, the Lord will return as a thief in the night. To the believer, we're to be watching and expecting him. Our Christianity, our spirituality, always comes down to personal devotion, personal relationship to God. And when you walk with God, the world doesn't surprise you or sneak up on you. Our Lord does not return as a thief to those who are watching, those who are sober. 
those that are reading their Bible along with the daily news and, and they see that time is short. Don't you just look around and say, how bad can it get before the Lord returns? I do. By the hand of God, this sixth angel, he gathers the kings and the powers to be to Armageddon. And he gathers them for God's purposes. Now let's look at the last and the seventh bowl. This last plague that is poured out into the air. And we hear a loud voice from the temple, from the throne, declaring, It is done. I believe that this voice is none other than Jesus himself. Upon this proclamation, great convulsions hit the earth. We have noises, we have thunderings, we have lightnings. And they hit the earth so severely that it's frightening. Sort of like when Californians come out here to the south. They're not familiar with thunderstorms. And they are frightened by these storms. And rightly so. The th a severe thunderstorm is a hard thing to get accustomed to. Lightning still frightens me. Especially when you hear it sizzle. Mm, I'm a little too close. <laughs> but earthquakes, they're a pure terror. <laughs> Especially strong ones. And earthquakes are going to come stronger than they have ever been. And these earthquakes are poured out in the seventh bowl. Recently, we had a 9.0 quake hit Japan. And we all watched in astonishment as these tsunamis created by the earthquake, they swept and carried away entire villages and entire towns. That earthquake that hit Japan was considered the fourth strongest earthquake ever. And it didn't last a few seconds, 20 to 30 seconds, like a normal earthquake, if you can have such a thing. But this earthquake that hit Japan lasted over four minutes. If you're an earthquake, that's an eternity. And these earthquakes spoken of in Revelation will have a severe effect on the earth that even the axis of the earth will be shifted, the rotation of the earth will be disturbed because of the unstable earth that we live on. We happen to live on an unstable planet. This planet earth is in the hands of God, His to do with as He pleases. So to shake and to destroy can be of God. And we're told that God, He will rebuild this earth. During the millennial reign for a thousand years, this earth will flourish. And then a new heavens and a new earth. But our hope, our Christian hope, is not in this earth, which is so commonly called anymore Mother Earth. 
which happens to be an insult to Father God. Uh, recently, I went to a funeral. My cousin's wife died down in South Alabama, and I went down to his to her funeral. And the pastor officiating over the funeral at the graveside, twice times he mentioned, and we return her body to Mother Earth. I'm a Christian pastor. You won't hear me say something like that at a funeral. And I'm thinking, first time I'm thinking, oh, he messed up. Then he repeated it. He didn't mess up. He meant Mother Earth. And I thought, how sad. This man is supposed to be a, a man of Scripture. We never return to Mother Earth. We return to our Lord. But we have prophets, and we have those in the book, whoever wrote Hebrews, where Paul or someone else, and they speak of the great shaking in Hebrews 12. And God declares a yet future shaking, a once more removing of things that are made so the things which cannot be shaken may remain. For those on earth at this time, those that are in the midst of the great tribulation, they will do one of two things. They will either trust in Jesus and lay down their lives because they trust in Jesus, or they will curse God, blaspheme Him, and suffer eternal damnation. You will do one of the two things. There will be absolutely no neutral middle ground. Now this great tribulation is a massive worldwide shaking and it's explained in verses 18 through 20. There has been uh, no such earthquakes since mankind has been on earth. Yow. Never ever earthquakes like the one that will hit during the tribulation. And it tells us Jerusalem will be divided into three parts, that great city. Cities and nations will fall. Babylon will receive the most devastating of these quakes. Even islands and continents, mountains will depart and be found no more. There will be a leveling of the earth. And then it says hailstones about the size of a hundred pounds will rain down on the earth. Now, we have thunderstorms here and we have warnings and there's hail out there about the size of golf balls and everybody tries to get their car in the garage, right? Well, a grapefruit-sized hailstone would weigh about five pounds. A basketball-sized hailstone, perhaps 20, even 30 pounds. How big would a 100-pound hailstone be? About the size of a large beach ball. Can you imagine trying to dodge those? You wouldn't get into your car. You would get under your car and hope that it didn't get crushed onto you. But why does God use hailstones? 
It's his choice of judgment. Why does he use hailstone? Well, hail was used in its judgment against Egypt in Exodus chapter 9. Hail was also a judgment against the Canaanites in Joshua 10, which we read about. Also, hail was a judgment against apostate Israel in Isaiah 28. It will be a judgment against Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38. Here's the clincher, though. When a person blasphemes God in Israel, they would take, in old times, they would take that person outside of the camp and they would stone him to death. Now God is going to rain down hailstones, huge hailstones, stoning to death many of the world's blasphemers. A judgment by God. And he uses these giant hailstones. This plague is called exceedingly great. But let me draw your attention back to verse 17 in closing. Where we hear Jesus say, it is done. In John 19, verse 20, Jesus, upon the cross, he's about to die. He declares, it is finished. Jesus, having paid the price for our redemption, paid it in full on the cross, bows his head, gives up his spirit, and says, it is finished, or our salvation is secured. It is complete. Now we hear Jesus say, it is done. What is done? God's wrath upon this earth and man is completed. It's done. The history of man is over. It's done. And now the rest of the book of Revelation only gives us the details of God being done with his judging of man. And you might say, the end. It is done. It's over. I am so glad to be redeemed. I am so glad that we're not appointed to God's wrath. So glad that my name is in the book of life. And I'm sure you are too. So let me get you to stand and we'll close in prayer. Father God, as we read about your judgments upon this blasphemous, evil world, it causes us to be so grateful. Grateful that we have a relationship with you. Grateful, Lord, that we're not appointed to your wrath. Grateful to have been redeemed. Grateful just to have you as our Lord and Savior. 
Thank you so much, Lord, for providing for us a way of escape. Thank you, Lord, that again we're not appointed to your wrath for this time of that we see in the book of Revelation. So, Lord, it causes us to be fearful for those that will be left behind and remain here. So, Lord, we pray for those that we know that are not saved. We pray for uh, relatives or loved ones, Lord, that do not know you. We lift them up to you. Ask you, Lord, through your great providence, save many. Save those, Lord, that don't know you, that are against you. Cause their heart to turn, Lord. Let them see the truth and then let them respond to your truth, Lord. Lord, you've told us that you take no delight in the destruction of the wicked. And that comforts us, Lord. So show mercy, show grace. And we thank you for loving us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh -huh.